Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for Your most holy Word. It is that Word that brings the dead to life. It is that Word that transforms the soul, delights the soul. So now, as we consider the beginning of this book, 1 Peter, may it give us life. May it give us clarity as we head through it in the days to come. And may most of all, you be exalted in our midst. In Christ we pray. Amen. Would you please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Follow along as I read these two verses that form Peter's greeting at the beginning of this book. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Consider the question for a moment, why would a, why would a person consider becoming a disciple or a follower of Jesus Christ? Why would a person become a follower of Jesus Christ? Although the preachers on TBN may want us to think differently, Christianity does not have a very strong track record of making people healthy, wealthy, and wise. The good life that involves little stress, lots of money and possessions, and popularity among the power players of the world, that's normally not the lives of those who become followers of Jesus. Indeed, it is often bodes very poorly for those who seek after those things, to have Jesus and all the aforementioned items. In the end, it's often made clear they only really wanted a Christless good life above all. We need only to continue reading in Hebrews 11 to see the outcome of many of the most premier followers of Christ who ever lived. The writer of Hebrews notes many of the miraculous things accomplished by the people of God in bygone days. But then he writes this in Hebrews 11. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves on the earth. And we probably aren't prepared for the phrase that then comes next. Of whom the world was not worthy. These kinds of people who treasure and follow the Lord Jesus Christ above all else shine as such lights that says something about those whose lives are in full distinction, of whom the world is not worthy. In other words, for those who follow Jesus, even amidst the scorn and the mistreatment of this world, 
they display that otherworldly hope that God is their sole refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble, as the psalmist writes. They display that the glory of Jesus Christ is of such supreme value that even the worst this world can offer cannot shake the reward that awaits them in the better country that God has prepared for them, as Hebrews writes. So if mocking and mistreatment and misunderstanding and suffering of all kinds is more normal than abnormal for Christians who follow after the footsteps of their Savior, why in the world would a person become a follower of Jesus Christ? Doesn't make a lot of sense when you do a human level calculation of things. Peter provides our answer. Because for the Christian alone, there awaits an eternal inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. Think of that. And it is kept in heaven for you, Peter will write. And God's own limitless power is guarding it for us until we take possession of it through the salvation of our souls. People follow Jesus because faith, by faith, they come to see that knowing the God of the Bible is what their souls were made for. That worshiping God and then communing with God through His Word is more glorious than life itself. Even amidst an antagonistic world, one can possess a living hope, as Peter writes. A living hope in a triumphant gospel that proclaims a crucified, risen, and reigning Christ. So this is the underlying conviction of the Apostle Peter, who writes, very likely from Rome, to a largely non-Jewish audience scattered throughout Asia Minor. He exhorts them to endure suffering or to prepare to endure suffering because of what Christ has accomplished in the past that resonates in the present with a steady hope of what will be fulfilled and consummated in the future. So friends, consider your relationship to this book and the Christ that it magnifies as we, by God's grace, in the next few weeks and then in the upcoming weeks yeah, throughout this year, continue to work our way through Peter's writings here as the Lord allows. So would you allow God to work in your heart through this book? So we consider some introductory information about 1 Peter 1. The book of 1 Peter has been regarded as one of the most beautiful writings in the entire New Testament. One of the easiest letters to read because it has never lost its winsome appeal to the human heart. It's been called the epistle of the living hope, for it breathes a spirit of undaunted courage and exhibits a type of piety that can be found in any writing of the New Testament. And as he writes, Peter's theme throughout the book is quite clear. Christians can endure suffering 
as they remember Christ's sufferings and look forward to the consummation of their salvation when Jesus returns. One author helpfully points out, he says, 1 Peter can be captured by the words, the end of all things are at hand. Chapter 4, verse 7. The words illustrate the tension that marks Peter's thought. On the one hand, the decisive work of salvation has been accomplished by Jesus Christ. What the Old Testament promised has been fulfilled in Him. And on the other hand, the fulfillment has not yet been completed. The end is near, but it has not yet arrived. So this is the tension with which God's people must live in this inter-Advent period between Christ's first and second coming. And we may rightly be overjoyed at Christ's triumph over sin and death and the grave, but we are still a people in exile, awaiting our eternal home. We are still a people who must honor and live under the legitimacy of human government. We are still a people who must honor God's wisdom in human marriage as well as in business dynamics in the workplace. And on and on, Peter will help us see. The tension is real and felt by every Christian still today. So as we focus simply on the opening greeting here in verses 1 and 2 this morning, let's take note of several features that display for us that this is indeed more than a simple greeting. In a sense, we are given a table of contents that whets our appetite for what Peter will unfold in the chapters to come. For now, let's begin by highlighting that this is a letter of apostolic authority. You see this very clearly in verse 1. Ultimately, what makes this point important is that we know that it to be God's self-revelation through the apostle Peter. Verse 1, Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's little dispute that this was indeed Jesus' disciple, Peter, who wrote this letter. So who was Peter? Let's reacquaint ourselves with one of the most familiar characters in the Bible, Simon Peter. Peter was a rough and rugged fisherman who grew up on the coast of the Sea of Galilee. John chapter 1, verse 44, identifies him as Simon, son of Jonah, from the village of Bethsaida. If you recall, Peter talked a lot. Like whenever he had a thought, which was often, he spoke. And it was often without a filter. Fishermen were often this way. Strong, manly men with coarse speech and fish stories to impress anyone who would listen. Peter's first encounter with Jesus ends with him receiving a new name, Cephas. Peter, rock. Jesus eventually calls Peter to stop catching fish and instead to catch men for the sake of the kingdom. After Jesus miraculously fills Peter's nets and with more fish than imaginable even to a fisherman, Peter knew I'd leave everything to follow that man. You might say Peter was a natural-born leader and by default, leader of the twelve apostles. And yet his brashness followed him throughout his earthly life. 
Peter jumps out of the boat to walk on the water, only to take his eyes off Jesus and nearly drown. Peter rebukes Jesus for speaking of his coming death, and he is sharply rebuked by Jesus. Peter proposes building three shelters or tabernacles, the transfiguration, to Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, only to fall headlong to the ground when God's glory appears. Many other such instances took place, but nevertheless, Jesus loved this impetuous, passionate man, and Peter loved his Lord. As most of us will recall, however, Jesus tells Peter that he will deny him three times the night of his betrayal. Peter publicly decries the very idea as unthinkable. But as the rooster crowed, Peter delivers his third denial in order to save his own skin. And he's reminded of Jesus' words. And he immediately, the text says, went out and wept bitterly over his sin. Perhaps he would later remember Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount that blessed, deeply satisfied or happy are those who mourn. Deeply happy people mourn. They weep bitterly over their sin. Jesus told him that. And indeed, Peter would find it to be true. However, Peter's denial of Christ was not his final act. The Lord had great things in store for this apostle, as he does for all of his children who come to him deeply humbled by their sin, as Peter evidenced. Peter's ministry throughout the book of Acts is prolific. In the book of Acts, Peter displays great courage preaching on the day of Pentecost when the Lord added to the church 3,000 souls. Peter shows great courage as he preaches Christ at the temple in chapter 3, boldly accusing the Jews of killing the very author of life, calling them to repent and turn to God so their sins may be blotted out. He does so again in chapter 4 before the high priest in the temple when he states Jesus is the stone that the builders have rejected and there is salvation in no other name but His. Peter confronts Ananias and Sapphira, chapter 5, about their dishonest gift, which ends up costing them their lives. Peter receives visions. He heals the sick and lame. He opposes the Judaizers at the Jerusalem council. He's knocked upside the head while fast asleep in a jail cell by no less than the angel of the Lord, then miraculously delivered. What a resume. We could go on and on about this man's life. But at the end of the day, Peter understood his apostleship as a stewardship from the Lord for his church. The Lord Jesus, whom he loved and whom he knew. So with that understanding, he, he opens his letter recognizing he is an ambassador for Christ to these dear, precious, elect exiles who are scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So this is a letter of apostolic authority, which is only significant because of the Lord Peter represents. Secondly, we see that this is a letter 
to scattered sojourners. Ever since the time of Israel's exile under the Assyrian and Babylonian superpowers, Jews would speak of those living outside Palestine as those who were part of the diaspora or of the dispersion. As you can see on the map here, Jerusalem and Palestine being here and those living in this region to which Peter specifically states he's addressing them. At the time Peter writes this epistle, it's estimated that there are likely two to four million Jews living outside of Palestine, with only about a million or so living in and near Jerusalem. So we should remember Peter has predominantly a Gentile audience in view. But throughout his letter, he will make many references to these Gentiles as being full standing members of the household of God, having been fully granted into all the rights and privileges of the true Israel of God. Nevertheless, the circular letter by Peter was to work its way throughout Asia Minor, preparing Christians for how to suffer well in the face of what could be great opposition. We see also that this is a letter to God's chosen, set-apart people. A letter to God's chosen and set-apart people. In the first two verses, there is this preview of the deep theology that undergirds every Christian's hope. And brothers and sisters, make it known to your soul that when persecution, when suffering, when heartache, challenges of all kinds come to you, you need deep truths. You need deep truths to anchor your soul. You build yourself up every Lord's Day as you cement the songs that we sing in your hearts, as you consider one another, and you see the joy and the shared trust in the Lord Jesus, and allow the Word of God to reverberate off one another and through one another. What you speak to your soul when your feelings are flying off in every direction, what you speak to your soul must be informed by the Word of the living God. Because after all, that's the only speech that matters. So what are these glorious truths that every Christian needs to hear and to be reminded of, especially in times of difficulty? Well, these pilgrim exiles who are sojourning to their heavenly home are the elect of God, the chosen and beloved children of God before the foundation of the world. How humbling is that? If you have received this gift of salvation, how humbling is it to know that a sovereign God chose you to have eyes open to see the glory of Christ? So one author writes, divine election reminds the readers that they have status. Not because they are so worthy or noble, but because God has bestowed His grace on them. Verse 2 makes clear that this divine election is according to the foreknowledge of God. 
according to the foreknowledge of God. This is the Greek word prognosis. Prognosis. A word carried over into English and used often in the medical field for forecasting a likely outcome for an ailment or a sickness. However, God's foreknowledge of His elect is not His forecasting of a likely possibility. Not at all. Far from it. It's not even merely His sovereign knowledge of what will take place in the future. As He looks down the tunnel of time, so to speak, to see what we will do in the future. No, that view would approach foreknowledge in a way that places God responding to man, which undercuts His sovereignty to its very core. In this approach, God is acting much like a person throwing a dart at a wall and then going up to the wall and drawing a bullseye around it. It makes no sense. In contrast to that prescience that looks forward and simply knows what will come, both the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter give us seven occurrences of this word and the concept throughout the New Testament that deepen our understanding so we understand it. In Romans chapter 8, probably one of the best representations of this concept, we read this, For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. So here Paul tells us that all whom God foreknew, He predestined, then calls, justifies, and glorifies. So in other words, this kind of foreknowledge, whatever it is, is of such a nature that God exercises not mere foresight, since that would have to encompass all people, right? Christians and non-Christians. This foreknowledge involves God's covenantal love, the same kind of love that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob set upon His chosen people Israel, as is described all over the Old Testament. It is a personal, relational knowledge that flows from a sovereign God to bring about all His purposes according to His will. A better analogy would be a world-class architect who studies an open lot of land and knows ahead of time exactly what he's going to do to build a beautiful building. God does not merely have that foresight. He foreknows exactly what He is going to do and sets His covenant love upon His children. In our case, to elect, to save a people for Himself and then to dwell among the holy dwelling place of God that they are for the glory of His name. I hope that is not dull theology for you. When David reflected on the all-encompassing relational love of God in Psalm 139, it's as if his soul wants to burst with joy. The fact that God searches 
and knows his soul, knows when he rises up and when he sits down, knows his speech before he ever speaks a word, knows our thoughts from afar. This kind of knowledge would scare most people. But David says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Worship is the fitting response of the foreknowledge, the covenant love of God for His chosen people. But not only has God chosen to elect and foreknow a people for salvation, but He has washed them clean, setting them apart through the sanctifying work of His Holy Spirit. The next phrase in verse 2, in the sanctification of the Spirit or through the sanctification of the Spirit, it describes the glorious election Christians receive from the Lord. I believe Thomas Schreiner is helpful here when he writes, the term sanctification often refers to the progressive growth and holiness in the lives of Christians. But in this context, however, the focus is on conversion. Peter explained how believers came to be a part of God's elect people. And when believers are converted, they become God's holy, set-apart people. As the gospel is proclaimed, the Spirit sanctifies some by bringing them to faith, by bringing them into the realm of the holy. So as we witness these baptisms in a few minutes, we see a visual picture of Christ's death, His burial, and His resurrection as each person is laid beneath the water and then raised, picturing the new birth and the hope of resurrection and being united to the Lord's death and resurrection. This also pictures a, a certain kind of cleansing. Just as God's Spirit has set these four individuals apart to receive God's forgiveness through Christ, they have been cleansed and are now set apart as holy to live a life of obedience to the Savior. This leads us to the next two phrases in verse 2, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Here we note the fourth and final point that this letter reveals in this short greeting. This is a letter to help us obey Jesus. This is a letter to help us obey Jesus. The Spirit who sanctifies, who sets apart every genuine believer, intends to accomplish something in their lives. It is not a moment that happens and then walk away and we, we never think about it again. The transformation is forever. He intends to empower the Holy Spirit, that is, to empower and enable them to obey all that Jesus commanded. This is what Paul writes at the beginning and the end of his letter to the Romans, aiming to bring about the obedience of faith. This is at the heart of the Great Commission as we make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe, to observe all that Jesus commanded. But how do these two phrases here interact with one another? These two phrases of obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. Well, with as much as Peter has already 
and will continue to saturate this epistle with Old Testament imagery. It seems a very strong possibility and likelihood that Peter has in mind the scene from Exodus 24. Here, Israel is at the base of Mount Sinai, offering burnt offerings according to Moses' instructions. Moses collects the blood of these sacrifices, sprinkling half on the altar, representing God's atonement for sin, then proceeds to read the book of the covenant before the people, to which the people respond, we will do everything that the Lord has said. We will obey. All right, they respond, yes. Moses then takes the other half of the blood gathered up in the bowls and sprinkles it on the people. This would be a blood oath that in essence declared our blood will be required if we break that covenant. Hebrews tells us, indeed, one of the most understated sentences, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. See how the author of Hebrews pulls together nearly every theme we've already considered in this, these short verses in Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through a greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of bulls and goats and the sprinkling of defiled persons uh, with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered Himself without blemish to God, purify your conscience? from dead works to serve the obedience of faith, to serve the living God. Therefore, He is the mediator of a new covenant. We inherit a rich tradition as we read our Bibles, don't we? We must read them cohesively together. We see such vivid pictures that prepare us for the work of Christ for sprinkling with His blood. Jesus Christ has secured an eternal redemption, sprinkling us, as it were, with His shed blood on Calvary's cross so that with clean consciences we may now serve joyfully the living God. Amazing. Just amazing. What grace. I mean, what peace our hearts now experience. Instead of our lives having to die, for we and Israel did not live up to, we will do everything that the Lord says. You and I are no different. We have failed. We have broken God's law, even as we read and confessed together in the prayer of confession earlier. We have miserably broken our Creator's will. And for this, blood must be shed. 
And so we praise God that God made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. This is the Christian hope. This is the glory of the gospel that Jesus has fulfilled it all. Peter concludes his greeting asking that God would multiply such grace and peace in our hearts as we live our scattered, as scattered sojourners seeking a promised land yet to come. But strengthened by great promises of God's electing love, the Spirit's sanctifying presence, and the Son's conquering triumph over sin and death. And in that hope, we stand. And in that hope, fixed in this hope, Peter will continue like a table of contents would to expound and tease out the glory of these truths. So how can we not respond in joyful obedience to our Lord? How can we not respond in worship if these things are indeed true? So let's return to that question we asked earlier. Why would a person choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ? Peter's answer would be because only Jesus grants a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Only Jesus can confidently secure for me an eternal inheritance beyond this world's comprehension. Only Jesus can bring the soul more joy than the best of days live for the kingdom of self and for temporal pleasure. So as we consider the living hope that is at work in these, our brothers and sisters who are uniting in baptism into this church, we, re- we rejoice in a sovereign God opening their hearts to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. We rejoice that although each of them know themselves to be hopelessly lost apart from God's mercy, a great rescue has taken place. For they have been a recipient of God's sovereign electing love. And by God's grace will be carried through the sanctifying work of the Spirit all their days to the glory of our Savior. So before we hear these stories of transforming grace, would would you bow with me now in prayer? Our Lord, we thank You We thank You so much. Before the foundations of this world were ever laid, You set Your love on Your people. This staggers the imagination, our minds, that You would build a people who would be Your holy sanctuary and would serve You as a kingdom of priests. Father, as as we are journeying through this book periodically in months to come, I pray for your aid and your help. Pray for a humility. Pray that we would be ever growing in our response to the living word of God. We pray for these four individuals, and we are so delighted and overjoyed
that your electing love has worked its way into their hearts. And the Spirit has set them apart for sanctification, for obedience to Jesus Christ, for the sprinkling of His blood. May your truth, may your presence be cherished in their hearts all their days. And may we as an assembly grow in our love for helping them grow deeper and deeper into this living hope. It's in Christ we pray. Amen.